You're listening to messages from Cuyahoga Valley Church in Brunswick, Ohio. If you're looking for more resources or want to get in touch, head to our website at www.cvcbrunswick.org. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your day and help you experience new life in Christ. Um, We are continuing in on our series we're calling War and Peace. We're looking at uh, Ephesians 5 and 6. Now today... We've got an interesting passage of Scripture because this passage of Scripture, chapter 6, verses nine, uh, six uh, chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, is instructions to slaves and masters. So of all the passages we're going to look at in this series, this one, I think, raises the most questions in our minds. But what we will find through this passage today, that it is far more subversive and far more practical than what we could really imagine upon first reading. So what I'd like to do, I want to read the passage, and then I want to address this passage by answering three questions. So uh, you'll see the uh, text on the screen. Or you could turn in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Starting in verse 5. Bond servants, or in the Greek, doulos, which literally means slave, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours, is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So I don't know about you, but upon reading this passage, where it talks about slaves obey your masters with fear and trembling, I think there's some legitimate questions that arise. One is like, okay, does the Bible condone slavery? Like, what... Like we feel like, yeah, slavery is an unjust institution. Does the, does the Bible like, does it, does it teach like, oh, slavery is okay? And in this passage, shouldn't the Apostle Paul, if the Bible doesn't support slavery, shouldn't the Apostle Paul be like, look, masters, release your slaves, free them, cut all this garbage out, cut it out. And if Paul doesn't do that, does God affirm the institution of slavery and does somehow in some injustice in God's heart? Well, I think all these questions are legitimate, especially from the cultural location we find ourselves today. So I'd like to address this passage and some of the questions that come up in your mind through answering these three questions. One, what was slavery like in the New Testament? Secondly, why didn't the Bible call for the abolition of slavery And thirdly, how do we apply this passage to our lives, okay? And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to find that this passage is very, very applicable to our lives today. 
All right, the first question I want to address is what was slavery like in the New Testament? Um, according to African-American scholar Thomas Sowell, in his book, Race and Culture, he points out that every major culture until the modern period, without exception, has had slavery. And in the first century Mediterranean world, which we see the writing of the scripture, the context there, slavery was not uh, 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 guessed, second guessed, spoken against, was not in anywhere believed that it should be abolished. In the New Testament, uh, slavery is different from the Old Testament slavery. In the Old Testament, uh, slavery was a form of indentured servitude. It was actually a function of bankruptcy. So if an Israelite made uh, bad business deals or maybe his crop failed, he would offer himself as a slave um, to work to pay off this debt. Now, every slave was supposed to be freed in the Old Testament every seven years. And actually every 50 years, all the land that was originally allocated to the 12 tribes of Israel was supposed to be given back to the original tribe. So it's like a form of of, uh, wealth equalization every 50 years. But the slavery you see in the New Testament is different from the slavery you see in the Old Testament. Scholars tell us that approximately 30% of the Roman Empire were slaves. And slaves were acquired or became slaves primarily by being born into slavery. And they were also acquired by uh, captives of war. Uh, They were captured by enslavers. They were maybe orphans. Uh, A child's parents could give their children up as slaves, and sometimes slaves voluntarily conscripted. And interestingly, slaves in the, in the New Testament era could accrue wealth. They were often paid. Uh, they could own their own slaves. And many of them, depending on their master, had the equivalent of PhDs. They were doctors. They were high-ranking governmental of- officials. They were educated. And most slaves were freed by the age of 30. Now, this does not mean <laughs> that slavery in the New Testament was some happy circumstance. No, no, no. Aristotle, the famous Greek ethicist and philosopher, called slaves instrumentale vocale, which literally means tools that could speak. Okay. They were rated, or they were valued just above livestock. So slavery was harsh. You were, a slave was at the whim of the master, but it is very different from the slavery our country experienced in antebellum America. Um, uh, James Jeffers, the professor at Biola University, says this, I quote, this means that at least for slaves in the cities of the empire, slavery was more a process than a permanent state a temporary condition to endure while heading toward a life, uh, uh, a better way of life. Now, why do I tell us these facts? It's because we need to differentiate New Testament slavery from the form of chattel slavery we uh, experience here in in our country, in the American South. Slavery in the New Testament was different from slavery in our country's history, still Slavery as an institution was unjust. But here are the main differences between slavery we had in America and slavery in the New Testament. It was not race-based. It was not permanent. Slaves were compensated 
and lived more as hired hands, uh, hence the translation bond servant in the ESV. And then virtually no one thought slavery should be abolished in the New Testament time, unlike antebellum American South. Okay, well, you might say, all right, well, that's the culture of the day. How come the Apostle Paul in the writing of Ephesus didn't say, cut it out, stop this junk, slavery is wrong? Why didn't he do that? Why didn't he tell the people in Ephesus, free your slaves immediately? It's this reason, and we're going to look at it in a moment as we study the passage. God used the gospel to tear down the institution of slavery first on a personal level. And the personal change in relationship of master and slave ultimately brought down the institution itself. Let me explain by way of illustration. Say you've got an ant problem at your house. Like this morning I woke up and one of the kids had dropped a little like piece of cookie in the entryway and there are little ants everywhere. So you can deal with an ant problem one of two ways. One, you could smack the ant and kill the ant every time you see an ant. Every time you see it, you step on it, you smack it with a sandal, you squish it with the, with the tissue. You might even go out to the backyard and kick the anthill in protest. But ultimately, that's actually not going to solve your ant's problem. The way you kill an anthill is you put out poison. And eventually, these ants come, they eat the poison, they take it back to their ant colony, and the poison kills the ant colony from the inside. For the injustice of slavery, God chose option two. See, in giving us the gospel, in an equalizing relationship of master and slave, and equalizing it into brother and sister in Christ, God laid the poison out, whereby people who put their faith in Jesus take the poison for slavery, bring it back into the communities and institutions where they live, and eventually slavery dies because of the gospel. You see, this is what happened all throughout history. Every culture where the gospel was present, slavery was killed. Sixth century, the emperor Justinian, uh, a strongly Christian emperor outlawed slavery in the Roman Empire. We see uh, throughout the Middle Ages that areas in West in Europe where the gospel was present, uh, 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 slavery was abolished. We even see in the British Empire, William Wilberforce, the champion of anti-slavery, worked in Parliament because of his Christian convictions. And we even see it in our American context. You see, as wonderful and as celebrated as the Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation should be, all that the Emancipation Proclamation did was got rid of the legal affirmation of slavery. It did not truly free African Americans because though slavery was 
abolished legally, Jim Crow South immediately sprung up. But it wasn't until the civil rights era, uh, a movement that was led by Christians, that we see the institution of enslavement come crumbling down. And I'll give you, I can only have time for one example. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech. The peak of that speech, the culmination of that speech is Isaiah 40. He says, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. See, where the gospel exists, slavery eventually will not. And does the Bible condone or affirm slavery? Absolutely not. Rather, the Bible sets out the poison that will one day destroy slavery. And we know that personally, don't we? When we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, when we we are slaves to sin, and we say, Jesus, forgive me, you died on the cross so that I could be freed of this sin. When we make that commitment, it's not like our sin in our lives just poof, goes away. The poison of the gospel that is there to poison the sin in our lives takes years and decades to work out. But eventually, if you have your, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, one day we will have sin no more. The institution of sin, when Christ comes again, will crumble. And as we look at this passage, given this context, I think we begin to understand what's at stake with uh, this passage, as well as how we can apply it to our lives. Okay, that was the world's longest introduction. Let us look at the passage this morning, starting in verse 5. Verse 5 through 8, bond servants, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So uh, sociologists tell us that we live in the most egalitarian society ever, where you have a job, even if you're in a union or some guild, you can leave that union, you can leave the guilt, you can get education, you can change jobs. We are radically free, right? We don't have slavery, we don't have indentured servitude. How do we apply this? Well, I think if we, we, we look at what slavery was, as we talked about in the New Testament, basically, slavery was lawfully constituted authority, right? It's lawfully constituted authority. And when we think of it that way, we're all in some lawfully constituted authority, whether we're in authority or under authority, right? Teachers, professors, bosses, those who you are in a contract with, local officials, your HOA, the city, you know, Mayor, Mayor Falcone here in Brunswick, 
um, boards, PTAs, landlords, banks, foremen, even a public utility worker. We all find ourselves either in authority or under authority. So this passage actually applies to us even more than it did at the first century. Because we find ourselves in the master role sometimes, and we find ourselves in the servant, the slave role. So what I want to do is let's look at this passage, both when we are under authority and when we are in authority. First, let's look at what our lives should look like when we are under authority. We should have three things go on. When we're under authority, we should have a posture of obedience, heart of sincerity, and a mind of clarity. The scripture says that we are to obey those in authority over us because God put those authorities over us. God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he knew what kind of boss you would have. He knew what kind of teacher you were going to have. He knows that uh, person on the HOA, right? When your grass gets 2.1 inches high and you get the little note on your door, God knew that you would be under some form of authority. That's why the Bible tells us that we are to obey with fear and trembling. That's just another way of saying with awe, awe and with respect. And we are however, have a reverence and a posture of obedience for those who are above us. We've all been on a team at work where there's five of us and it's that one dude, he doesn't want to do anything. We've all been at that project where all she wants to do is milk the clock. We've all had that school project where everyone's pulling their weight except for that one person. What the Bible says here in instructions for those under authority is that that person dragging their feet, that should never be the Christian in the group. The Christian should have a posture of obedience, eager to do the best that he or she is able. And we see when this is true in our lives, we live it out, it actually blesses those around us. Um, There's a, a sociologist and an economist named Max Weber. He wrote in the 1930s, and he uh, looked at uh, Europe and America, and he tried to determine why is it that Northern European and American economies grew at such a robust rate where Southern European economies did not. Well, he, uh, through his research, coined this term called the Protestant work ethic. And he said, based on the theology and doctrine of Protestants, that they are to live out their religious devotion even in their workplace. Because of this Protestant work ethic, the economies in Northern Europe and America were more efficient, more effective, had better workers, more honest workers, and harder workers. So when we live this out in our workspaces, in our volunteering, it actually blesses the entire community. All right, the next posture we should have, the next disposition is a heart of sincerity. Look back with me at verse 7. Verse 6 says, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 
whatever we're doing, we are not just to go through the motions. We are to have our heart poured into the filing of reports, the fixing of cars, the preparing of meals, the changing of diapers, the designing of widgets, whatever work you find yourself doing, we should not only do it well with our hands, we should make it meaningful with our hearts. We are called to do God's will in our work with a sincere heart because our work, when under authority, we are working as unto the Lord, as if we were doing it for Jesus. And then our third disposition, we should have a mind of clarity. In uh, verse seven, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. The God we serve is all-knowing, all-seeing, he is all-just, and will reward those who are obedient to him by loving others. So we need to be clear-minded, brothers and sisters, that whatever you do in your work, even if your boss does not see or reward, our heavenly Father does. Our heavenly Master sees everything we do. And Scripture says He will reward those who are faithful and diligent. So we should have a posture of obedience, a heart of sincerity, a mind of clarity. Next, let's transition to those who are in authority. When you find yourself the one who people look to in the room, whether you're a boss or a leader or the, the leader of a group or a team, this is where the passage speaks directly to you. Verse nine, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Now we kind of gloss through this and we don't like, it doesn't smack us in the face like a cup of cold water. What he is saying to masters, to slave owners, to important people in this church, he's saying this, everything I instructed the servants, the slaves in, same with you. Okay. All of this that I just talked about, same with you and stop your threatening. You see, if you are a wealthy, prominent person who owns slaves, never, never were you ever addressed in this way. I'm a, I'm a free person. I own slaves. I'm a I'm a wealthy person. I'm a governmental official. I'm in the Senate of Rome. No, the Apostle Paul says, hey, all this stuff to you, same with you. You are to do all these things as well. And this is astounding that he would, he would uh, uh, assert such a command. But he goes back to Romans, a concept we see in Romans 6. He's uh, Paul writes this in Romans 6. It says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, 
either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. What he's saying is it doesn't matter your economic status, doesn't matter your place in society, it matters your heart disposition, your mind disposition, your obedience, all of this stuff that you're concerned about. No, no. Ultimately, it's about the, sin, the slavery of sin or the freedom in Christ. And he levels the playing field. So he is telling in this verse, people who are in authority, you and I, when we are in authority, we need to live with these dispositions. We must have a posture of a servant, a heart of a steward, and a mind of a judge. You see, if you are in authority, you're the boss, you're the most important person in the room. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should go into those spaces with the heart of a servant. How do I serve? all these people I am above? How do I give my life and how do I work in hidden ways so that their potential, their lives, their work could be all that much better? That's the posture of a servant that you and I should have. Secondly, we should have the heart of a steward. Now, what is a steward? A steward is a person who is given limited and temporary responsibility over something incredibly valuable. We are given limited and temporary responsibility over something that is valuable. So that means those employees, those children, those, uh, uh, whoever's underneath you, you are to guide and steward so that they can use their gifts to best glorify God, even if they don't know the Lord. You see, I was speaking with a good friend in my life group uh, this past Wednesday. He he works for a kind of a high top tier um, tech company. You would know the name if I mentioned it. And he was sharing with me that he goes, there's this weird thing in this company that he just switched jobs. He goes, they call everyone a resource. They don't say like, oh, we need another person on this project. They go, we, we need another resource on this project. Do, do we know any, you know, instead of saying, do we know uh, someone who can do this specific task or has these skills? They say, do we have any resources that can function in this way or that way? And he's like, it gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit, right? Because it's a tech company, you know, and you think about like all the control. Anyway, we are not to view people as resources. <laughs> we are to think of ourselves as stewarding image bearers, people, men and women made in the image of God. And that really changes the disposition with which we respond to them. And then finally, we are to have a mind of a judge. Look at that last phrase in this paragraph. It says that there, and that there is no partiality with him. There is no partiality in God. God does not have a bias and is not influenced by flattery or the lack of knowledge or any other factor. God is a perfect judge who judges without bias. And we, when you and I are in authority, we are to judge and to live and to act without partiality. You see, our culture talks a lot about equality. Equality bends toward sameness. Everything is the same. But the Bible doesn't want everyone to be the same. Rather, the Bible talks about God having no 
partiality. What that means is when we respond to people and lead impartially, we give people opportunity to live out the gifts and talents with which God has given us. We see in, we see in Matthew 25, the, Jesus' parable of the three uh, three servants, where one was given 10 talents, one was given five talents, one was given uh, one talent. And two of them did a great job, one didn't do a great job, and they were, uh, they were uh, rewarded or punished accordingly. That's what the Bible wants. In our leadership, when we are in authority, we should look to see differences arise, but utilize those differences so that people can make the best use of the talents, the gifts, and abilities that God has given them. I want to close um, this message uh, with a, uh, a helpful analogy. I think these ideas are all good, and I think a lot of them maybe aren't mind-blowing, but I think the playing out, the applying day in and day out is the challenge. But if we could sum up this passage, I, could, I think we could sum it up in this illustration. So each one of us are in relationship with others. So we have a relationship with the boss or maybe a relationship with an employee. And often these relationships with the boss, relationship with the employee, they can get tense. Maybe there's a relationship with a, a child or a neighbor, whatever the case is. And if we are to live this out, we are to live in authority and under authority as to the Lord. What that means is instead of us seeing our boss, what happens is that Jesus comes in between. Instead of looking at our boss and getting frustrated and trying to milk the clock and and trying to subvert, we think, hey, what would I be like if Jesus asked me to fill out this report? What would it be like if Jesus asked me to clean this toilet? <laughs> I remember I was a substitute custodian uh, in college. A, like, here's a custodian. I was a substitute custodian down here. And I remember cleaning these bathrooms and, and, and feeling like, man, this is just a waste of my time. But when you read these passages, you go, no, no, no. I'm cleaning this toilet. I should be cleaning this toilet as if Jesus Christ was going to use it. See, when we, when we put Christ in, the, in between the relationship with ourselves and someone in authority, it dramatically changes the way we relate to that person. Same when we're in authority. When we have someone who's stiff-necked and not wanting to do the job and not wanting to, how would we respond if, if Jesus was in that place? Now, we know Jesus was perfect. But how would we want someone to respond to Jesus on a work site? How would we want someone to respond to Jesus on a team? You see, if we are to live this out and apply this vitally important message, we have to put Jesus before our face. We have to live live this out as unto the Lord. And when we do that, we get the power and the perspective to apply this out. And when we do, if you live this out wherever avenue you find yourself, you will, as James says, shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Well, I hope this has been helpful. I know this is a passage that's sometimes hard to chew through and get, you know, the slavery and master. But I I do feel like if we can understand what God has for us, it can really dramatically change our nine to five, our daily lives. So I want to pray and then invite Kevin up. He's actually going to have two more songs he's going to lead 
actually through the piano this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this, uh, this passage. Thank you for your word. Lord, would you help us to live this out in everywhere there's a power dynamic, Lord. Lord, we know you are the most powerful being. You had the most power. You have the most power ever. But Lord, you came and you were under authority and you gave us a model on how to live this out. So Lord, we love you. Help us to do that every uh, step of the way, every part of our day, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, friends. If you want to talk about anything that you've heard today, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find contact information and further teaching series on our website at www.cvcbrunswick.org.